Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. If you would, please look in your bulletins to our text for today. Our text is 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the beginning of a story, and that story goes into chapter 12. And the story in the text before us is the basis, or was the basis, for my very first sermon. Years and years ago, long time ago, ancient history, as a matter of fact, 30 years ago, basically, uh, that I preached at my home church, uh, White Oak ARP in Georgia, in Coweta County. And I preached that sermon as I was just about to go into seminary full-time, or at least I was considering going into seminary full-time and coming under care of Second Presbytery of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, which is basically Georgia, our, our church is in Georgia and the western part of South Carolina. My pastor, Raven Williams, was going to be gone on vacation, and he asked me if I would preach. This, this guy who wasn't yet fully into seminary, I'd taken some seminary classes, but wasn't fully there yet, and with some fear and trembling, I said yes. And I chose this story, but I chose the entirety of it. Now, I've got a little bit of experience now, a few years in ministry, so I'm not going to do that again. Uh, I'm going to preach on uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 today, and then the next time I'll pick up with 2 Samuel chapter 12. But before we dive into chapter 11, let me do as I did this morning and make a rare application even before we get into the text. And this application is primarily for our elders, but you can also apply it to yourselves as well. When I preached that sermon, I remember after the sermon was done, I went to the back of the church to the door as they had asked me to do so that people when they're going out, uh, I could greet them and and, and, uh, give them an opportunity to encourage me and As I was there, I I noticed, I saw from the front of the sanctuary, one of the elders make a beeline back to me. And his name was John Hemphill. And John made his way right back to me and shook my hand. And, and, And John said, brother. Now, you know, that's the language that Christians use, right? But get this, John was a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army. And he was saying, brother, to a 25-year-old preaching his first sermon. He said, brother, thank you for faithfully preaching God's Word. 
And then he went on to discuss some of the details of the sermon. So I knew he had actually paid attention. He'd actually listened. That was John. And those words of encouragement that he gave to a young potential minister are still with me to this day. Congregation of Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, we have elders like that. We have elders like John Hemphill. And brothers, let me encourage you to give such encouragement to the young men the Lord brings here. We're blessed. We're, we're just up the road from Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte. We have the opportunity to bring in interns and, and young men. And men, you make a stamp on them that can last a lifetime. Thank you for what you're doing. Keep it up. And brothers and sisters, you can do so as well. I still remember those words after some 30 years. Oh, so by, by the way, as an aside, uh, after the service is over, if you have opportunity, say something to Joni. Tell her, uh, give her condolences or tell her that you know, she's amazing for having put up with Lee for 35 years. Today is our anniversary. Now back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11. What I want to do is read the first verse and the last verse, and then we will work our way through the entirety of the chapter. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Cast your eye down to the last verse, 27. And when the morning was over, mourning for a death, David sent and brought her the Hurus Bathsheba. This is the story, the infamous story of David and Bathsheba. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing, and we're going to see what that thing is, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing, the big, despicable, heinous, hideous complex of sin. Before we get there, go in, in your minds with me to Israel. Modern day Israel. We'll go to the Sea of Galilee. We'll hopefully have um, our lodging in a hotel uh, in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. And while we're spending time in the northern part of Israel, they're based in Galilee, we're going to take, uh, we're going to take day trips. And one of the first day trips that we will take out from Tiberias is we'll go to Nazareth. And we'll not only go to Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth was basically the hometown when, when Jesus was a, a boy, and it's where he was a young adult, it's where he would have joined his father Joseph and would have done carpentry work. And carpentry work in that day wasn't just exclusively wood, but it would have been stonework and some woodwork. Uh, we, we're going to Nazareth. We're going to, to see that city. But while we're there, we're also going to go close by, a few miles away. Basically, you can, you can see this place if you're in Nazareth and if you're looking out a couple of miles. And that, that place is 
a city by the name of Sepphoris. Now, Sepphoris is not mentioned in your Bibles, but Sepphoris was this Roman city. And it was this Roman city being built by Herod Antipas, and it was being built during the time of Jesus. And so imagine you're, you're living, you're, you're, you're w- w- with Jesus, or you're with Joseph, you're in this podunk country, small town, or village even, that's known as Nazareth. But there's this big city being built. Where are you going to go to work? Where are you going to get your, 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 your income? Jesus and Joseph, no doubt, made the trip back and forth, back and forth to Sepphoris. And I'm, I'm taking us there. We're, we're, we're in the bus, we've landed, and one of the first things I want to show you is the theater. The Roman theater is still there. You can see it. And we'll sit there and we'll look down and imagine being there in Jesus' day. But we're Gentiles. We're, we're there and we're watching some play. And then I want to take you next to some of the villas that have been uncovered. Uh, the villas, and, and this is, uh, Sepphoris has also been called the city of, of, of villas, the city of not only the villas, but what was found in the villas, mosaics. Some 40 mosaics have been found in this city that Josephus would later call the Jewel of Galilee. It was going to be one of the capitals of Galilee. We'll we'll go to those villas and we'll look down at the floor and we'll see these beautiful mosaics, these beautiful pictures, and we'll imagine what it was like to be the rich and famous in Sepphoris so long ago. But then I want to take you to one other place. And this is the place that stood out to me when I had the opportunity to go there. I want to take you to see Main Street. It's a straight road that would have been right through the middle of the town, the city. It's a Roman-built road, so you know straight as an arrow. You know it's well-built. It's a stone road. But what struck me was not that it was so much that it was straight, not so much that it was made of stone. What struck me were the ruts. The ruts that had worn down in those stones the whole Length. Now, what caused those ruts? Wagon wheel after wagon wheel after wagon wheel after wagon wheel going down the same road, the same familiar path. I want you to have that image in your mind. That's one of the images that I want you to have uh, as we walk our way through 2 Samuel chapter 11. A road that's been traveled on by so many, so familiar ruts. Then I want you to have one other image. We're going, to, we're going to take both of these images and carry them through. The other image is the image of a snowball at the top of a mountain, a snow-capped mountain. It starts out small. and Something causes that small snowball to begin to roll down the mountain. And children, what happens when a snowball rolls down a snow-clad mountain? It gets what? Bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually it can become an avalanche. A well-worn road that so many travel. Something that begins small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Have those two images in your mind as we go through 2 Samuel chapter 11. What's it about? What's the thing that God was displeased with? He was displeased with David's sin, or better said, sins. The famous, the famous story of his taking Bathsheba. 
Now, then where does this story begin? Well, verse 1? No, I think it actually begins back in chapter 9 and back in chapter 10. And you remember from the last few Sundays, what was, what was David doing in chapter 9 and chapter 10? He was doing good things, right? He was seeking to offer chesed. He was seeking to offer covenant loyalty, faithfulness, and love first to Mephibosheth, someone within the covenant people of God, bringing uh, the lame Mephibosheth to his table to care for him, to offer love and provision. And then in chapter 10, he's offering that same sort of covenant love to someone outside the covenant people of God, to Hanun, the the son of King Nahash of uh, of the Ammonites, who now was king, and he was extending it there. In other words, David was seeking to do that which was right. Justice and covenant love extended inside the church of his day and extended out. And our story of 2 Samuel 11 begins there. And this is the point I want to make. David was seeking to do that which was right. And when he was, guess what? He was a target. He was a target for his own sinful flesh. He was a target for the world. He was a target for Satan. For Satan, the world, and David's own sinful flesh did not like David doing what? That which was righteous, that which was good, extending said to others. He, in that moment, was a target. Dear ones, so are we, so are you, when you're seeking to do that which is right. And by God's grace, you're extending said to others. Know in that moment that you are always in such times, a target for your own sinful flesh, for the world, and for Satan. Let's let that sink in. Let us let that be a reality check. Let us let that drive us, not to forsake doing good, but when we are doing good, to cry out to the Lord, Lord, protect us, keep us from falling away. That's where it starts. Where does it go? Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle or go to war, David didn't. I'm kind of speculating here. I'm thinking, okay, after 9 and 10... I've done my good deeds. I'm going to kind of take it easy. Put up my feet, prop up my feet, send others to do my work for me. I'm going going to just kind of set aside my leadership responsibilities and I'm just going to take it easy. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but... David remained at Jerusalem. The road has started. We're entering the ruts. Here we have a sin of omission. Failed leadership. But the wheels of the wagons keep turning. The snowball has begun and it's rolling. 
Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Late in the afternoon, y'all get that? He's lazing around late in the afternoon. All right, I guess, I guess I'll go and stretch my legs for a bit. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. His house. And I can see David, can't you? He's looking out over all of Jerusalem, my Jerusalem. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. As you're hearing those words, hear echoes from Genesis 3. Another fall is beginning. David sees forbidden fruit. Now the author is concise. The author doesn't gussy it up. He doesn't give us a bunch of details, but you know what's going on in the mind of David. The snowball is rolling. A sin of omission now is leading to a sin in the mind. A mental violation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus would later say in the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The snowball keeps growing. The ruts keep going. Verse 3. David sent. He, he acted upon. What had been in his mind now is starting to come out. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, It's not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliab, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Pause there and think. David is inquiring about her. Why? Were his other wives not enough? Was one wife not enough? What's the Tenth Commandment, brothers and sisters? You shall not covet thy neighbor's house, you shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. What duty does the Tenth Commandment require of us? Contentment. Was David content? He's inquiring after this beautiful woman. He's discontent. He has a discontent heart. Add another sin. The snowball is rolling. It's growing. And two things I want you to notice there in that verse. Verse 3. It's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Now, that's telling you two things. If you connect all the dots, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Chronicles, and maybe also back into Joshua, you'll figure out that Bathsheba 
was the granddaughter of one of David's older advisors. In other words, she's basically a generation younger than David. He's going after a young woman. One other thing, she was, she was the daughter of Eliam. Another thing to think about. She had a dad. She was some man's daughter. Now, this can be applicable to all of us, but I want to I speak to the men. When you're tempted to look at things and go places you know you shouldn't, remember this. She's someone's daughter. She was someone's daughter. She was also someone's wife. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Another man's wife. And not just any old man. No, it's, it's Uriah the what? The Hittite. And yet it's a Uriah who's fighting for David. So Uriah that evidently lived in Jerusalem. In other words, it was one who was from outside the covenant of people of God, who had been brought into the covenant of people of God, con converted to faith in Yahweh. Here is Uriah. He has joined the covenant communities, fighting faithfully for God's people. And Bathsheba is his wife. Would any of that, that she was the daughter of someone and the wife of someone, would any of that stop David? It didn't, it didn't even give him pause. He doesn't even bat an eye. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. He saw the forbidden fruit, he took, and he ate. And he didn't hesitate. What was in the heart and the mind has now come out, and it's physical. Lust in his heart became adultery in his deeds. With someone who wasn't his. With someone he hadn't made covenant vows to. He had the power as king, he used it, and he abused it. He got what he wanted. The snowball keeps growing, the ruts keep going. David, by his actions, is, is answering God. God in the Ten Commandments, in the Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery, David. David answers him, God's law? No. My lust. God's will? No. My will. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, any sin, that's what we are doing and saying. God, your law? No. Mine. God, your will? No. Mine. I will get, I will do, I will think, I will feel what I want. And notice this. 
What had been just in him now has pulled somebody else in. Her name was Bathsheba. Sin splatters. Sin affects others. My sin, your sin, our sin affects other people. No matter how private we think it is. Didn't stop there. He got what he wanted, right? You can go now. Ladies, get that. He got what he wanted. You can go now. Young ladies, get that. That can often happen. He got what he wanted. You can go. There's a parenthetical part there in verse 4. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's just a note to tell you she could get pregnant. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, very concise message, I'm pregnant. His sin had consequences. So does mine. So does yours. So now what? The snowball keeps rolling and the ruts keep going. Now David wants to do what? Since, oh, I've got a predicament. And you know what? You can't hide a pregnancy for long. It's going to show. It's going to become public. I better handle it. I better cover it up. Let me get Uriah to come home. Uriah, come on home, buddy. Take some time off. Go in and have some R&R with the wife, the little lady at home. It'll be all taken care of. No one would know. Well, no one other than David, Bathsheba, and God. David not leading his men against the Ammonites. David lounging around. David's lust, his discontentment, his physical adultery. What next? Well, how about a little deception? But his deception runs up against, notice, the loyalty and the faithfulness and the covenant hath said of Uriah. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Oh, let me pull a name out of the hat to bring me news of how the war is going. Oh, look at there, Uriah the Hittite. Send Uriah to me. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. How's the war going, guy? Can you give me a good report? And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house. Wash your feet. Take it easy. Enjoy your wife. Uriah went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah didn't go down to his house, David's thinking, it doesn't say this, but you know he's thinking, you weren't helping, you're not helping, you were supposed to do what I said to do. I got a 
Think of something else. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or in tents. And my lord, Joab, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? I wonder if he had a suspicion of what might have been going on. I don't know. As you live, David... And as your soul lives, I'll not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, You're not cooperating. Remain here today also, and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate, him, he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. This'll do it. I'll get him drunk and I know where he'll go. He'll go home. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. The snowball keeps growing. The rut keeps going. Now with his uh, plans of deception foiled, David's sin is going to become more heinous and more hideous. The one who had put Mephibosheth at his table to feed him is now the one, as one commentator said, who will put Uriah in his grave. Verse 14, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. My plans to deceive didn't work. It's going to be revealed if something doesn't happen. This is what's going to happen. And I'm going to sign his death warrant. Now notice David's thinking. Notice his sin is progressing. It's getting worse. It's growing. But his mind is getting, I would say, shabby. He's beginning not to think well. First of all, he gives this, this order for Joab in the form of a letter, and who's he sending it by? Uriah. What if Uriah gets a little inquisitive? And then, not only that, but he's sending it to Joab, and he's saying, Joab, you know, take and get, 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 get him right there in the battle where it's going to be the hottest, and then have your men fall back. Now, if he, if he had done that, more people are in on the story. More people are in on the plan, the plot, right? And I would wonder what some of those soldiers would say. Why are we leaving Uriah? He's, he's our friend. He's faithful. He's fighting. How can we as good soldiers leave a comrade? David's not thinking well. The snowball keeps growing. The ruts keep going. Verse 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerusha Besheth? 
Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, oh, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite stands also. Do you see what Joab is doing? He got the kind of muddled plan of David, and now he's thinking, oh, I'll, you know, that, that, could, that could blow up on us here. Let me instead of talking to my men and telling them to back away at the opportune moment, at the signal, we just let some more of these guys die. And Uriah's death won't be the only one. And we'll hide it. The snowball keeps growing, the ruts keep going. And oh, how hideous it now was. But we aren't done. Let's see how David responds. Verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus Shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. What's David saying? Joab, you win some and you lose some. Wink, wink. Good job. How utterly wicked and depraved. Verse 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. I don't know if those were crocodile tears or not. We're not told. And when the mourning, the official mourning time, that's what you got to do. You know, somebody dies, you got to mourn. You got to set time to mourn. It's time for that to be over. When the mor- time, when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And bore him a son. He got what he wanted. Let's cap it all off with a sham funeral, some crocodile tears, an official mourning period. But get it over with quickly. And let's move on down the road. And all this, all this to notice, I want you to notice, I want you to look back over these verses. There's no mention of God. None. None. The author, I think, is wanting us to get this point. David, in all this, has pushed God out of his thinking. God and God's law out of his thinking as far as possible. God is silent, but never mistake silence for absence. The last of verse 27. But the thing, now you know what the thing is. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Let me tell you a quick story 
I read it in one of the commentaries. It's the story of Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson was an Englishman converted through the ministry of George Whitfield in the First Great Awakening. George Whitfield was that Calvinistic Methodist great preacher. And, and Robinson was converted under his preaching ministry, and he, after being converted, would later become a Baptist pastor. And he would pastor in Cambridge. And many years would uh, go by. And as those years went by, Robinson felt himself drifting further and further and further away. Don't know exactly what was going on in his life, but things were going on in his life. And one day he needed to go to another part of the town or to another town, and he, and he gets into the taxi of his day, into the stagecoach of his day, and he sits, and there's a lady in the other bench traveling companion and she's chatty she's talking she's bubbly and she is bubbling over about all these new hymns that are being written in the great awakening and her favorite was come thou fount of every blessing and she kept going on and going on about it. and finally you could tell he's getting agitated and he finally said madam I am the poor and unhappy man that composed that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I owned them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Verse 3 you'll recognize of that great hymn. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. You know the next line, don't you? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. For thy courts above. An ancient, well-traveled, straight, rutted road. Snowball that began small and became an avalanche. A spectrum of heinous sin. Where are you? Where are you? You're there, somewhere. You're somewhere on this spectrum. I don't know what you're, you're wrestling with. It may not be lust. It may be pride. It, it may be bitterness. I, I don't know what it is. But you're somewhere. Maybe by God's grace, you're at the end of chapter 9 or you're at the end of chapter 10, and by God's grace, you're seeking to show uh, said love and shalom to those within the covenant community and those without the covenant, outside the covenant community. And you're seeking to do that which is right by God's grace. Praise the Lord. If that's where you are, and I hope it is, praise God. But you know, you remember what I said? If you're there, you're what? Your target. You've got a target on your back. Use this moment right now, dear ones, if that's you, to cry out to the Lord, Lord, protect me from myself from the flesh, from the world, and from Satan. 
But maybe you're, 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 you're in the ruts now. It's started. But maybe right now it's just in your mind. Maybe it's a sin of omission. Maybe it's your mind and it's a sin of commission. Or maybe you're beginning to act upon all that. Where are you? There's no one here that's not somewhere on this spectrum. What's the first thing you need to know? The very last sentence of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let me end with Galatians 6 because I think Paul's probably got this in the back of his mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he pens these words. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Someone's in the rut. Try to get him out. Try to get her out. Gently. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We all are facing temptations of all sorts, and we need one another. Bear one another's burdens. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Verse 6 let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever you sow, that you will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. David, don't grow weary at the end of chapter 9. Don't grow weary at the end of chapter 10. Keep doing it. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone. Hanun and Mephibosheth. Everyone. And especially those who are the household of faith. Where are you, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Lord, you know all. You know what's in our minds now. Strengthen us, O oh Lord. Enable us to resist temptations. Enable us to see what starts out small can become hideous, horrific. Spare us, Lord. But if we find ourselves in the ruts, take us out. 
deliver us. Bind our hearts, our wandering hearts, to Thee. We ask, O gracious Lord, for Jesus has lived and died for us. In His name we pray. Amen.